Hello and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time, hosted by Rick Palmer. My guest for this episode is Dr. Jack Hunter. Jack is an anthropologist whose research explores the borderlands between consciousness, religion, ecology and the paranormal. He is a tutor with the Sophia Centre for the Study of Cosmology and Culture, University of Wales Trinity St David, and teaches on the master's courses in ecology and spirituality and cultural astronomy and astrology. His books include Greening the Paranormal, Exploring the Ecology of Extraordinary Experience, Manifesting Spirits, An Anthropological Study of Mediumship and the Paranormal, and Spirits, Gods and Magic, An Introduction to the Anthropology of the Supernatural. The latter title is the focus of our interview, as I talk more with Jack about anthropology and how its principles and methods in the field can be used to understand the nature of paranormal phenomena and potentially help to issue in a sea change in the Western world in how that is understood and appreciated. Fascinating stuff indeed. Enjoy! Jack, welcome to the podcast. It's lovely to be here, thank you. What first drew you to studying the supernatural from an anthropological perspective? Uh, Well, if I think back into my childhood, I've always had an interest in um, paranormal things. I've always been intrigued by things like folklore and mythology. And I also remember um, when I was much younger, a couple of times when my one of my little sisters said that she'd seen leprechauns in our house. And uh, I remember asking her to like draw pictures of the leprechaun and describe it to me and that kind of thing. Um, so I've always had a kind of interest in trying to delve a little bit deeper into these experiences. And another thing I remember doing early on in my life as well was um, trying to do like UFO surveys in our local villages, <laughs> but always being really disappointed and not getting much back. But I've always been doing things like that, basically. Um, And when I was in high school, I've sort of started to see the link, maybe even back then, uh, between paranormal experiences and religious experiences and religion. And I became very interested in um, religious studies in high school. Um, And that kind of introduced me to, well, other than Indiana Jones, introduced me to the idea of anthropology as a you know, a way of exploring these kinds of things. Uh, So when I went to university to study archaeology and anthropology, I just became much more interested in the sort of anthropology of religion angle, um, different theories of religion, uh, different ideas about where religion came from and that kind of thing. Um, And then my, one of my uh, tutors on the, uh, my undergraduate course, Fiona Bowie, who later became my PhD supervisor, she had this uh, module on religion and cosmology, and uh, she introduced us to the work of the anthropologist Edith Turner. Um, and she described, Edith Turner described this process of participating in, in a ritual and actually witnessing a spirit manifestation at the end of the ritual. And, you know, when I realized that, you know, that it was possible to be 
an anthropologist and write about these kinds of paranormal experiences. I should also say that I'd had some of my own experiences, you know, earlier on in life as well. Um, psychedelic fairy encounter of my own and things like that. So when I realized that you could be a scholar like Edith Turner and also talk about these kinds of experiences, you know, seriously, um, then I was kind of hooked. <laughs> and then here I am now. <laughs> no, that sounds fascinating. I mean, why do you think that it's the way that you're able to have those conversations when you're at university and and within the anthropology but it, it seems fair enough to say in mainstream society, especially in the media, the, the supernatural isn't always taken seriously. Yeah, exactly. But, but anthropology has got a long history of, um, you know, going to different societies, living with people, um, living in different worldviews, essentially, and trying to take, trying to understand them on their own terms. I mean, there is a longer history to anthropology. It hasn't always been trying to understand other cultures on their own terms. A lot of the time, and even sometimes, even today, um, you know, the, the the approach has been to try and explain away uh, religious beliefs, you know, in terms of cognitive processes or whatever, because that fits nicely within the, you know, like you say, the mainstream Western scientific framework. But other anthropologists have argued that actually when we're talking about different cultures or different ways of life they're actually we're talking about completely different other worlds and that we can't reduce them to you know the frameworks of, of western materialist science that actually other worlds are you know irreducible in some sense so yeah that's um been a kind of a strand within anthropology that has opened up the possibility for talking about these things so anthropology is kind of like uniquely placed really as a discipline in universities for um, approaching and trying to understand, you know, the paranormal on its own terms through the methods of anthropology as well, which are things like, you know, participant observation and actually engaging with things and participating in rituals and that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, anthropology actually is is good for many reasons, you know, dealing with the paranormal because of its cross-cultural perspective but also because of the the research methods that it employs because i think things like participatory you know field work and stuff actually fits with the paranormal really nicely you know we know from parapsychological research that the paranormal kind of is participatory in nature so a research methodology that actually engages with it on those terms might might reveal interesting parts of the process and that's really where my where my research and my work is kind of focused. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, as well. Do you I mean? Do you think in some of the cultures where there have been people have gone and and lived with these people and done ethnographic studies, is it a case that they're often not bound up in things like an objective reality or proof yeah. and things like that? Things things that are very much. Um, at the forefront of Western thinking are is sort of rationalism and yeah and and the burden of proof um are, are those things that that aren't as important yeah I, I wouldn't say maybe like things like objectivity because you know people in you know in super who who dwell who live through supernatural world views 
you know, also experience the objectivity of the world and that kind of thing as well. And mm-hmm. this is another key point that's arisen out of um, anthropology is that, you know, we think there has been a tendency in the Western world to think of the supernatural and paranormal beliefs as irrational um, and, you know, as something to be avoided, whereas the Western approach or the Western scientific approach is rational and good. Um, but anthropologists like, um, you know, in the early 1900s, like Bronislaw Malinowski, Polish-British anthropologist who went to the Trobriand Islands in Papua New Guinea, and he found that then, you know, these people had very sophisticated technological and scientific understanding of the world. You know, they could do all of their f- hunting and fishing and gardening and building the houses and creating the kinds of technologies that they needed, you know, to survive. Um, and they did all of that scientific and technological stuff alongside their magical and religious practices. Um, and actually, he came to this really interesting idea that sometimes magic is even an extension of technology and science. So he gave a really great example of um, Trobriand Islanders uh, going on fishing expeditions. And he said that if you are a fisherman and you're going out into a relatively predictable environment like a lagoon, you know, which is just a still body of water, um, then you don't necessarily need to do any magic for that because you've got good technological knowledge, you've got good understanding of, you know, the, the, the water, the kind of fish that you're going to encounter in there, you know, of the weather on the day and that kind of thing. But if you're going out to do deep sea fishing or, you know, out in the ocean uh, where things are much less predictable, and much more dangerous so you know you have all of the currents and the waves and not to mention predators possibly you know sharks and whatever and all of those other variables that is the time when you know they have all of their scientific and technological knowledge and that's well and good but they might then want to reach out to spirits or gods or or to some kind of idea of luck or something like that um just to just to show that they've done everything that's within their power to ensure that they're going to have a successful fishing trip and that they're going to come back alive. You know, so the point is that magic and science or magic and rationality are not necessarily two competing uh, ways of looking at the world. So it's not necessarily that the, the other worldviews lack this idea of objectivity, but it's more like they 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 also leave the door open to other possibilities as well. So they're still very much grounded, rational, objective kind of people, but also have room for the, the, the possibility of spiritual interactions or magical things. And this is the same even in Western society. You know, when we talk about Western spirit mediums and, you know, or, or whatever, or Western magical practitioners who possess, you know, all of the same technological uh, access to computers and whatever and things like that that we do, but also have a magical worldview as well. <laughs> so they're not by any means, you know, incompatible, which is an interesting thing. Absolutely. Um, something that I really liked about uh, your your book, Spirits, Gods and Magic, is that it highlights how it's quite easy to see the world a certain way because you're sort of conditioned to do that, especially in the West. And something mm. that I I found really, really interesting was you talk in the book about 
monophasic and polyphasic cultures. Can you just talk a little bit about that in more detail? Yeah, it's a really interesting idea. It comes from the uh, transpersonal anthropologist Charles Lachlan. He's a really cool, uh, cool anthropologist who's been a pioneer in different ways of incorporating, you know, the transpersonal into anthropology. And the basic idea is that, you know, some cultures um, emphasize one state of consciousness um, over and above any others. So the, the Western societies, you know, like um, British society or American societies are a good example of this, where we place like um, our everyday waking state of consciousness kind of on a pedestal. And the mainstream view, of course, is the mainstream cultural narrative about these state, this state of consciousness is that this is the, the most useful, most productive state of consciousness that we've got available to us. Because when we're in this state of consciousness, we can go to work, we can do all of the jobs we need to do, we can fulfill economic functions, you know, all of that kind of stuff, useful stuff. We can work in an office and drive a car and that kind of thing. Um, and we denigrate, or our society has tended to denigrate, other states of consciousness. So dreams are seen as irrational and that kind of thing. They're seen as, as being useless or full of, um, you know, fanciful ideas. Um, other kinds of altered states are seen as, well, for entertainment value. So alcohol, for example, is, you know, is permitted. It's a state of consciousness that's more or less permitted in Western society, but it's only seen as being of, you know, entertainment value it's not a practical state of consciousness <laughs> and you're not generally advised to you know be drunk at work or anything like that <laughs> you know but these are just two examples of very you know of states of consciousness and there are many others so we know that in western in british society in particular you know even states associated with you know um cannabis and things like that are seen as intoxication and not necessarily as a a practical state of consciousness, for instance. Okay, so this is this is the point of contrast then with polyphasic cultures. So in a polyphasic society or, or culture, they will place emphasis on maybe, you know, a range of states of consciousness. So they'll have, you know, the waking state of consciousness is, of course, a useful state of consciousness to have, but we can also get useful information about the world from dreams or in certain societies where they consume, you know, psychoactive substances to enter into spirit worlds, that these states of consciousness are useful and valuable. Or in traditions where, um, you know, uh, spirit possession traditions and things like that, where people are possessed by spirits um, in a desirable way, you know, we call it mediumship in the West, um, you know, this is a, an altered state of consciousness that is positively sought out. So in a polyphasic society, then, you have a range of states of consciousness that are seen as important and useful and that can be drawn on for various different tasks, like divination or magic or whatever, um, whereas in monophasic cultures, they generally um, emphasize one state of consciousness and often demonize you know, other states um, as being you know, irrational or ecstatic or... You know, any of these different kinds of words that people use to describe states of consciousness that are not everyday waking states. <laughs> what is it in general that moves a culture from being polyphasic to monophasic? Well, I think the the issue is uh, is to do with cultural trends, isn't it? 
and that you know there are certain reasons why um you know U- european societies ended up the way it has over the the years con- contrasted with you know maybe a an indigenous amazonian society different approaches to the world the western approach has often been to um you know we we we're, we're run by this principle of occam's razor and science and of simplifying things um whereas you know indigenous world views are or worldviews that are polyphasic are not necessarily um, so reductionist. And I think that's a big part of it, that the Western society has been dominated by this way of looking at the world that has that breaks the world down into, um, into little pieces, its constituent parts, and it likes things to be mechanical <laughs> and smooth, you know, smoothly operating, um, whereas, you know, indigenous societies, again, are much more organic, or they're they're much more um, embedded in in a particular place. So that this is another big difference that we've got between Western and Indigenous or non-Western societies is the kind of colonial aspect, isn't it? Um, mm. So Western societies have generally gone out into the world in order to colonize and to enforce their way of uh, of doing things onto other people. And one way of of enforcing that is to restrict, ecstat- you know, ecstatic states of consciousness or different ways that people have been able to access, you know, what they think of as sources of divine knowledge and things like that uh, to cut people off from it. So that's a part of it anyway. Um, and then obviously politics is a big part of it. So we we've ended up in this situation that we're in in the UK, for example. Um, you know, if we contrast it with like, um, even, you know, talking about legalization of psychedelics and stuff now, you know, contrast it with uh, some states in America, it's very backwards, but it's political, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. In, um, in, in monophasic cultures, is time more of a sort of fixed concept? I, I, I wonder if in, in monophasic cultures, Sorry, in polyphasic cultures, that's something that's um, not always key to those experiences. That's it, yeah, because it's true. You know, in um, many non-Western societies and indigenous societies, time is a cyclical, is understood psychically. And so, you know, it comes, things come around time and time again. And it could well be related to, you know, I mean, this is only speculation, but societies that experience or place a greater emphasis on other states of consciousness may well experience time in different ways. Now, this is an interesting thing to do with uh, whether ideas like cultural ideas are just the product of culture, whether they're just ideas or whether they might actually have an experiential source as well. And I think a lot of the, you know, many of the, when we look at you know polyphasic societies or indigenous societies, mm. much of their cosmologies are based on experience, whether in terms of you know psychedelic experiences or shamanic journeys and things like that. Uh, whereas our Western cosmology is, you know, scientific cosmology, it claims to be very empirical, doesn't it? But actually, is very we're very distant. In, you know, from the things that modern cosmology talks about. 
it's not as experiential. It's much more conceptual and abstract. So, you know, that's another point of interesting contrast. <laughs> I don't know if that answers your question. Absolutely. Yeah, it does. It's, it was just re reading about those different types of culture in a, in a polyphasic culture. It feels like there wouldn't be the, the need to debate whether Bigfoot exists or UFOs or ghosts or anything. It's because they're, they do exist in a, in a certain state of, of reality. Yeah, exactly. And that, that's often been the, the role of the shaman is, or, you know, the, the holy man or the medicine man or whatever you want to call the person who, whose job it is to, to enter into those other realms through altered states of consciousness and to ensure that we're living in good relationships with those other than human beings. And this is where we're opening up now into like a, the area of animism and all of that kind of stuff which I think when we bring this, maybe we'll just explain what animism is. It's a concept from um, anthropology, um, basically used to refer to, it used to be used to refer to the belief in spiritual beings. And it was coined by a guy called E.B. Tyler, who was like one of the founding fathers of anthropology. And he said that um, animism was the most basic definition of religion, essentially. So it doesn't matter where we look in the world, we find people who believe in spirits and that's religion. And essentially even the high, you know, we call them high religions like Catholicism and stuff are still a form of animistic belief. But in more recent years, there's been a shift of focus because people like Tyler saw animism as primitive and, you know, evolutionarily redundant and all those kind of things because they were working with, within this kind of evolutionary scheme. Um, but, that kind of evolutionary scheme has been abandoned now. The animism has kind of re-emerged, um, but has been defined slightly differently. So these different indigenous societies are animists now, not because necessarily they believe in spiritual beings, like E.B. Tyler said, but because they're, they, they are relational societies. They are all about relationships between human beings and between... Um, other than human beings or spirit beings. So in these other societies, you have a shaman or someone whose job it is to ensure that those relationships are good. And then I think when we bring that idea of animism as about relationships with other than human beings to bear on the paranormal, well, it opens things up a lot more. And actually the paranormal doesn't actually seem unusual or abnormal from an animist perspective like you were saying with a polyphasic perspective you know these there's a place for these things now so things change don't they when you start to look at the world differently and this is one of the big contributions of anthropology is to say well, what happens when we look at the world from the perspective of animism for instance many things begin to fall into place <laughs> so it gets you questioning then the underlying assumptions of the, you know, the Western scientific worldview. So that's what, um, that's why this area is so interesting. I think it's very challenging. I agree. I, I, I like animism a lot and I feel as though um, most people I, I probably do 
act along sort of animistic lines in that you, anyone that has a, a pet, um, you you treat that pet as if it's a person. You you get you it has personhood. It has its own identity. Um, all sorts of things like talking to a car that won't start, or talking to any machinery that's acting up and just being nice to it. You have that relationship with that thing, which is an inanimate object, but you, for in that state, you see it as something you can relate to and talk to. So it feels like it feels like there are these, even in societies where you wouldn't say they were animistic, there there is an undercurrent of it, just because it's 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 sort of how humans work, I think. And I think this is showing again this this um, difference between um, the experience experiential worlds that we actually live in, and then the cultural models that we get taught to us as being the correct view of the world. <laughs> because you know, like you're saying, we do look at the world, we do treat the world animistically. We do talk to inanimate objects. You know, we do talk to trees and animals and things on an everyday, regular basis. But the cultural model tells us that that is actually, you know, crazy or insane or uh, abnormal or paranormal. You know, so there's something, there's a tension, isn't there, between experience and culture. We keep getting told that the cultural view is the correct view of the world when our experiential uh, engagement with the world reveals something different, something much more complex and much more uh, subtle and nuanced. Yeah. Hmm. Early on in the book, you have a chapter about uh, ghosts and spirits and gods. Um, when writing that part of the book, I mean, I'm impressed by you, you could distill something so vast into a, a, a small chapter of the book. I mean, what what are the key sort of anthropological principles or what is the what is the key uh, sort of anthropological context that you can we can get when looking at the idea of ghosts and spirits well the way that i did it in the book i started off actually by putting um spirits or the issue of spirits into um, the anthropological debate over uh, personhood and what is what does it mean to be a person and we have um, in the Western world very fixed ideas about what a person is. So, you know, if we talk about a person, um, we're generally referring to a human being, for instance. You know, in the English language, we don't generally refer to a dog as a person, do we? Um, but this is not necessarily true in other cultures, as anthropology reveals. There's an amazing anthropologist called Alfred Hallowell um, who did work with the Ojibwa. Anishinaabe people in North America in like the 1940s and 50s. And he, he noted that in their language, um, even things that in the Western world we would consider as inanimate, things like rocks, were considered as persons. So their language actually inc- included them as grammatically animate. Okay, so there's a whole... There are whole language systems in the world that refer to things that in English we refer to as inanimate, as animate. Even in Welsh, I was only reading the other day about how, uh, you know, the elements like the weather in Welsh are often referred to as feminine, as he. Um, you know, when people are talking about the weather, 
So it's, it's encoded in a lot of our languages. So I frame ghosts and spirits in, in this um, issue because, you know, some societies will class other than humans, as in spiritual beings, also as persons. Okay, so in a, in a, in a society or a culture or, or, a, or a worldview that, that has um, a language or a framework for understanding non-physical persons, then the existence of spirits and things like that, again, is not, it can't be paranormal. It can't be abnormal. It's actually to be expected. And this is one of the interesting things that Hallowell found when he talked to this old Ojibwa uh, chief. And he asked the, the guy, so, you know, because in your language, um, all of the stones are referred to as being alive. Does that mean that, you know, all of the stones are actually alive? And the Ojibwa man said, uh, not all of the stones, but some of them are. So the point is that, you know, the language leaves open the possibility for these things. The worldview leaves open the possibility so that if you do encounter it, so if you do encounter a stone, for example, that speaks to you in some way, or that does something strange, that it's not automatically branded as paranormal or supernatural, it's seen as a, you know, something that is to be expected, basically, that there are other than human persons out there. And then what I started to do in that chapter was to look at different models of the person, because anthropologists have noticed that, you know, in the West, we talk about the person as an individual, as a single bounded entity. And in many non-Western and indigenous societies, the individual or the person is actually considered as a made up of multiple parts. So I give an example in the book of the ancient Egyptian idea of the person, which consists of several different parts. And when you understand what the, the meaning of these different parts, there's the ib, the shoot, the ka, the ren, all of these different pieces of the body, essentially. When you understand the way that they understood the person in ancient Egypt as made up of these different pieces, then you understand the reason why they did the mummification. Because, you know, the, the spiritual part of the body could only survive as long as the physical part was also intact. So there's lots of interesting things. And then there, there, there were different ways of thinking about these non-physical parts. There was a, one part of the, of the person would kind of act as a wraith or a shadow or a ghost kind of thing. And another part of the person would go off to the afterlife and live in the spirit world. So this raises some other interesting questions, you know, for like, ghost hunters in the west for instance you know when you're talking to a ghost in a in a haunted house or something uh what part of the person are you talking to are you talking to the person's shadow are you talking to the person's soul are you talking to what you know is it a recording when you look at things from a cross-cultural perspective you know these st our standard ways of thinking about things um are kind of shaken a little bit and we have to consider alternative possibilities and I think that's actually really useful, especially in the paranormal, uh, in the realm of the paranormal, where we get very fixed on ideas like ghosts are dead people, for example. Yeah, yeah. Maybe some ghosts are dead people, but maybe some ghosts are something else. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, a popular theory for ghosts, in, in some, for some ghosts at least, is that it's almost like you're watching a, a recording or it's a memory. I get the, like the building almost has a memory. Are there anthropological customs that you've found or became aware of through your own research that kind of have 
those ideas too about about buildings and and the retention of of memories that a building might have well i mean no i haven't found anything specifically that kind of you know that sounds like the you know the stone tape theory from psychical research or anything like that's a very kind of technological way of thinking about things but definitely Mm. the idea that objects can be imbued with or buildings can be imbued with some kind of uh, spiritual energy or um or a presence or or something like that is a very widespread cross-cultural kind of theme you know haunted houses and things like that or haunted locations are um you know, one of the most common, one of the most widespread kind of notions. There's a really interesting idea by um, a theologian, Rudolf Otto. He said actually that haunted houses or hauntings were the beginning of, again, all of these old scholars were interested in trying to find the beginning of religion. But Rudolf Otto thought that hauntings were actually the beginning of religion, where you'd have a place where there was some kind of a, a spirit or something that was indwelling in that place. And then a shrine would be built there and eventually the shrine would become a cult and then the cult would become a religion <laughs> and all of those kind of things. So yeah, it's very cross, very widespread cross-culturally and hauntings may have had, like Otto said, an important role in the development of you know, religion and the supernatural as we understand it today. Mm, and, and going back to animism i suppose a, a house a building could have its own spirit yeah um especially exactly. houses that you people move into if they is more often than not when someone moves out of a house they'll be quite often they'll be sad they're leaving it because it has a lot of memories for them and they form a relationship with it don't they so you can definitely see how uh, you know i i, I like the idea of of, of buildings having having that um whether they have it from the get-go or or having people in them and living in them bequeaths them a, a spirit or something like that I, I don't know yeah this is another cool point as well about persons how you know there's in the western world we think about a person as being given from the beginning so like we're born as who we are and we're the same person throughout our lives um, so, you know, that's the idea that the house is, comes with a ghost already attached to it or a spirit already attached. But there are also ways of thinking about persons that are processual. Mm. So the person builds up over time or, you know, you, you don't, you're not born as a complete person, but actually over the course of your life, you have experiences and things like that that contribute to your personhood. So, you know, I, I like the idea that actually, you know, the personhood or the haunted nature of a house could build up over time, that it's not just because the house was built on a particular location or anything like that, but that, yeah, the things that happen in that building, you know, over time contribute to its, yeah, spirit of place, isn't it? Mm, definitely. Um, what part does philosophy play alongside anthropology? And sometimes the difference between an occult philosophy and a religion seems to be terminology. <laughs> um, what do you think about, about that? Well, in, in terms of like academic anthropology, as with most of the 
the disciplines, you know, it emerged out of philosophy. Uh, you know, like psychology emerged out of philosophy and all of these disciplines. So philosophy has had and continues to have a big impact on anthropology and the way that anthropologists think. So, you know, some anthropologists will be influenced by particular philosophical ideas. You know, early on, like you're saying, um, people like E.B. Tyler were influenced by the philosophy of the day, which was all to do with evolution and that kind of thing, and that influenced the way that they looked at the world. So there's a very kind of important relationship between the two. Philosophies obviously inform the way that we approach the world. So um, in that respect, you know, there is a close relationship between the two dis- the two approaches to looking at the world. Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking of things like um, that Neoplatonism is quite similar to Gnosticism. One's very much a is more I would say a religion and the other you would probably say is a is a philosophy but they they seem to have similarities in terms of there being sort of a true world and a false world or a world of or, or, or a sort of an objective world and then a subjective world yeah exactly I mean, in, 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 in uh, your think... in your research sorry go ahead no you go and ask the question I, I was just saying um is is that something that you found in um, within anthropology that that cultures will sort of have this viewpoint of there being uh, a sort of a, a dichotomy between the world that is lived in and the and another realm? I mean, I know this is sort of going back to what we were talking about with monophasic cultures and polyphasic ones, but I'm I'm just wondering about that that sort of dichotomy. Yeah, well, again, you know, we look the making a distinction between, you know, uh, an empirical world and a non-empirical world, for example, is a very Western scientific um, way of thinking about the world. Even, you know, and sociologists and people like that have, no, have recognized this for a long time. You know, Emil Durkheim, again, another of the founding fathers of sociology, but he pointed out that, you know, in order to call something supernatural, you have to first have the idea of the natural, yes. you know, the idea of um, fixed laws, because that's what we mean by the natural, you know, in the Western framework. The idea is that, you know, there are fixed laws of, of nature that science can discover. But actually many, you know, many other societies and cultures around the world don't have that model of nature. Nature isn't about fixed laws. Nature is about minds and wills and um, motivations and intelligences. And again, we're back to animism. You know, nature isn't understood as, as blind uh, mechanical laws like it is in like Newtonian physics. It's actually understood as being as consisting of many persons and relationships uh, between those persons and between human beings and those other than human persons as well. So yeah, that it's... Um, yeah, non-Western societies don't necessarily think of the world in those kind of binaries. And actually, the um, the, the spiritual world um, can be very much a part of everyday life. Uh, you know, and rituals and in, interaction with spirit is not necessarily like, um, you know, going to church or some kind of big elaborate, you know, demonstration like that, but actually is a 
expressed through your daily activities and your daily routines and and things like that so again it blurs this idea blurs the line between um the spiritual world and the physical world actually the two things are totally the same thing um so yeah right no i of course i it's 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 hard to get out of that mindset even when you're asking questions i <laughs> Um, but do you do you you think that's why often when the things like ghosts and uh, ufos uh, cryptids all these sorts of things are researched in in the west there's it's not always negative but it can be quite mysterious or and some encounters can be frightening and do you think that's because there's just a general dissonance between because of what we've just been talking about because it's seen as the supernatural, because it's seen as being separate and and other, that's that naturally means that it's going to be seen as as frightening. To some extent, yeah, because uh, we are constantly taught that these things are well. We see them mostly in horror films, for example, hmm. don't we? So it's ghosts and spirits and things are to be associated with horror <laughs> and fear and all of that. This is another funny thing that Malinowski noticed. He, was, he, did, he wrote a really great paper called Beloma about the afterlife beliefs of the Trobriand Islanders. And they had a really cool, or they still do, a really cool idea um, where the spirit actually goes to live on another island and they have the island of the dead, which is a physical island. And there was two parts to the spirit. Um, one part that would just sort of hang around for a few days and would be a trickster kind of thing so it might come and knock on your door and stuff do poltergeisty kind of things for a few days after the death and then they understood that that would just generally dissipate so that if they did encounter this spirit a few days after the death they weren't scared of it they <laughs> approached it kind of jovially because it was a, a, a kind of a clown and they knew that it was going to dissipate um, but then this other part the baloma goes and lives on the island um, of the dead permanently so that island becomes a haunted place where people go and have strange experiences. So they're very, very different um, ways of thinking about spirits, aren't they? Depending on your cultural background, they can be seen as friendly. They can be seen as, uh, you know, beneficent. Uh, some people, are, you know, some traditions around the world, you have everyday interactions with spirits, leaving offerings and things. It becomes a part of your everyday life. Um, in the Western world, uh, it's again generally viewed as some kind of a pathology. At worst, you know, it's seen as a symptom of uh, schizophrenia or some kind of illness. Uh, and at best, it's seen as kind of like uh, you know, quirky. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. No, that's interesting. Um, in the book, you you talk about ethnography and the paranormal. Can you just talk a little bit about ethnography and its place within anthropology? Yeah, so ethnography today is the kind of the, the main methodology in social anthropology. Uh, you know, so like I was saying before, people like E.B. Tyler in the Victorian times, they, they, they're considered to be armchair anthropologists nowadays because they hmm. didn't really do uh, field work. They didn't go out um, to live with people they've generally relied on the reports of missionaries and explorers and things like that. 
But I should point out that, you know, this is not strictly true because even people like E.B. Tyler did do some field work. He did research, field research with spiritualist mediums in Victorian London, which is super interesting. And he also went to Mexico to do some field work as well. Um, so it's not, you know, it's not fully an armchair anthropologist, but generally they would collect information from, you know, other people, secondhand sources. And obviously those those sources would be full of all the biases and whatever of the people who collected them. So it wasn't first-hand accurate empirical scientific knowledge. Uh, but it was people like Malinowski, again, who really introduced the idea that anthropology should be empirical and that the anthropologist should go out into the field and do research and live with people. And ideally, Malinowski said, you know, if you're in a non-Western society, you should learn the language and things like that. You've got to live there for at least a year amongst these people. I really get to know the ins and outs of their way of life, lifestyles, their everyday, you know, things that they do. So that's what ethnography is. It's basically living amongst people um, and then writing it up, writing up a, a description of what it's like to live in that cultural or worldview. This is what ethnography means. Ethnos is basically people and graphos is writing, isn't it? So it's writing about people. So this process of like um, going in and living with people, interestingly, has led to a proliferation of sort of uh, hardcore paranormal experiences amongst anthropologists. Um, But, you know, there's an interesting story around this to do with you know how willing anthropologists have been historically to talk about their own paranormal experiences. So we can talk about, for instance, um, Evans Pritchard, who was uh, is a very big name in anthropology, and he was you know active in like the 30s and 40s, but has had a very lasting influence. And uh, he had a paranormal experience while he was doing his research among the Azandi in in uh, Sudan, where he saw this orb of light burning in the bush and kind of floating towards a, a neighboring village. And when he described the experience to his informants, they said, you know, that's obviously witchcraft. And Evans Pritchard, although he described this experience, he kind of poo-poos it literally and says it was probably someone, you know, lit by someone on his way, uh, a torch lit by someone on his way to defecate. It's kind of his terms. So he kind of made it into a joke, the fact that he'd had this experience. Because there was an understanding that if an anthropologist, you know, adopts the ideas of their informants that they have gone native, and this is the terminology that was used, and if you've gone native, then you've lost your objectivity. Um, So you're not a scientific anthropologist anymore. So there's a whole tradition then um, of this kind of ignoring anthropologists own experiences in the field and experiences that sometimes might actually validate something of the worldview of the people that they're talking about and this is precisely what happened with Edith Turner who I mentioned right at the very beginning um, she had initially been a kind of an objective detached anthropologist with her husband Victor Turner and she'd observed these rituals with the um, Ndembu in Zambia and um, she'd done all the classical kind of anthropological description but hadn't participated and when Victor Turner died she went back um, and participated in these in this Ihamba ritual 
and she really participated in it physically and emotionally and engaged in the ritual and felt the ebb and flow of the uh, the drama of the whole thing and experienced it and lived it. And then she described at the climax of this ritual, you know, seeing this grey ectoplasmic blob being extracted from the back of a patient. And there's other interesting stories of ethnographers who've had paranormal experiences like that. Another one, uh, Bruce Grindle, uh, an American anthropologist who described this experience of seeing a corpse reanimating. Yeah, that was incredible to read. Yeah, and all of these strands of light coming from the fingers and things like that. And, you know, again, his, his story is interesting because he'd had this experience in the 1960s or whatever, um, extraordinary experience, but kept it in his research notes, not written about it until much, much later. And there was actually a shift in like the 90s towards starting to see the experiences of anthropologists as being valid in themselves as, you know, data, not just, you know, as uh, kind of like weird offshoots. There was a great book called Being Changed by Cross-Cultural Encounters, where anthropologists, including Edith Turner, talked about how their own experiences of doing field work and, and the experiences they've had, they'd had, which you know we would consider paranormal experiences, maybe, or extraordinary experiences, had actually impacted them, and occasionally had suggested that there was much more to these belief systems, which you know usually think about them as just systems of beliefs which could be wrong, but that these belief systems might actually refer to something real as well, or that spirits might be real. And that's why Edith Turner ended up declaring that, you know, it's the job of the anthropologist actually to try to learn to see the world as, she says, the native sees it, to try and see, to participate and to try and understand it from an experiential first-person perspective. Um, So, yeah, ethnography is kind of a really useful tool uh, for understanding the paranormal. Like I was saying before, the paranormal seems to thrive on a participatory kind of approach anyway. Mm. So it it kind of makes sense as a research tool, I think. Especially when you compare it to, like, um, what parapsychologists find, you know, the evidence from parapsychology in in labs, which is, you know, only just statistically significant. But if you compare that to, you know, these extravagant, like, corpse reanimations and (laughs) spirit materializations and whatever, then you realize that the lived experience of these things is much, much more potent and powerful and interesting. Um, So that, I think, is the contribution of ethnography to paranormal uh, research. Hmm. One thing I wonder is that do you think that in the in the West it might be that these other types of entities, spirits, and all, all these all these sorts of phenomena that people report is an is an attempt to get more people in the West to participate? Yeah, what well, you think it's directed by some? Well, and one idea I, I wonder about is that it's only been a few hundred years really, that the West sort of had been directed along a sort of a more rationalist way of thinking with with the Enlightenment and things like that. But before that, I think most cultures were probably not too dissimilar to, you know, the types of cultures that you would find in the places where 
the anthropologists you talk about went to visit and and spend time with those people. So I'm just wondering if if a culture builds up a relationship with these other types of being, and then everything goes quiet for a few hundred years, the, do these entities wonder where everyone's gone, and that they and then and they're trying to reinitiate some sort of contact, and that's why sometimes it will feel strange in that way. You didn't intend to see Bigfoot, but it found you. And, and sometimes ghosts and things will, will feel like that too. I think um, it fit, it feeds into um, the Greening the Paranormal book that I've been you know, working around recently. And this idea that paranormal, certainly some kinds of paranormal experiences anyway, are a, a form of communication with uh, a place. Uh, you know, mm. and sometimes it's a spontaneous communication that's initiated, you know, like a Bigfoot encounter or something like that. Um, and you're right. Yeah, we we think about it that it is or we think about it in terms of a, a hairy hominid or <laughs> or whatever, a bit like a scary monster or things like that, when actually it may, in fact, be something else completely. It might be a manifestation of um, rage you know, that forests are being clear-cut hmm. or any number of, of possible things. So, yeah, thinking about paranormal experiences as a, a form of communication from the other, I think, is a very fruitful way forwards. Definitely, uh, yeah, interesting avenue. Yeah, and, and like you were talking about a composite soul before, if you if you have a composite nature and you take that into the forest maybe part of your soul kind of manifests as this big lumbering hairy man-shaped being <laughs> exactly it's a, like joshua cutchin's recent ideas about poltergeists and bigfoot and I, you know the idea that as well that poltergeists from parapsychology are actually psychokinetic <laughs> so that's an interesting idea that it's actually a, a psychokinetic manifestation of our own inner wild man <laughs> that's cool yeah um I, I know that you've written another book called manifesting spirits where you spent some time at the bristol spirit lodge can you just talk a little bit about that yeah well that's the um the product of my uh, phd research and um basically it's a study of this group the bristol spirit lodge who are uh, private home circle um, they're spiritualists but they don't call themselves spiritualists with a capital s like little mm. little s spiritualists they're not associated with the spiritualist national union or any kind of um organization or church or anything like that they are a private group and i i started to study them for my undergraduate dissertation in like 2008 or something like that and then um it my it just sort of carried on <laughs> and it turned into my PhD which I finally submitted in 2018 or something like that so it's, a it's 10 years worth of um, of research on this group and uh, I as a, an anthropologist you know especially early on in the research um, I was a participant observer um, I was going to attending seances on a regular basis um, sitting with different mediums and uh, interviewing spirits and all of those kinds of things. 
and I also because of my interest in the you know like I was saying before the experiential source of supernatural beliefs which is an idea that comes from David Hufford really um, and his work on sleep paralysis you know I wanted to experience some of this stuff as well uh, so I also participated in, in mediumship development uh, sittings and had a couple of sort of, sort of strange experiences um, well what the most unusual one was when my left hand seemed to become sort of possessed <laughs> or to um, it was trying to communicate in some way um, it was sort of um, moving about and I was in this state of consciousness uh, where I could feel my own physical body, um, but I was also sort of detached from it. And I was aware, I don't know if you have ever felt that feeling before. I hadn't if previously that my hand was doing something that was not of my conscious control. <laughs> so this was a super interesting experience and it really freaked me out. But for me, it became what I call my, well, I borrowed this term as well from another anthropologist called Zelshko Jokic. He calls it a point of intersubjective entry into another life world. So because I had been able to have this experience of what it's like to lose control of even just a little part of my own body in this way, I can now imagine, you know, I can expand that idea to my whole body and I can see quite clearly from an experiential point of view how it's possible to have an experience at the very least an experience you know uh, regardless of whether that experience is actually genuinely paranormal or supernatural or anything like that the experience itself is real but you can have the experience of being overtaken by a spirit and when you realize that that there is there are, that people have extraordinary experiences when they're going to séances then the whole seance thing has to be reconsidered because the standard, you know, debunking kind of thing almost misses the point that seances are actually a, a place for exploration of, uh, you know, your own consciousness as well. And it's not necessarily just about the, you know, the ostensible, you know, manifestations or spirit voices or anything like that, but it's a process of learning for everyone who's engaged in it and of testing the limits of their own consciousness and you know, seeing how far they can go with their meditation or you know, things like that. So the book is really about um, yeah, all of the different ways that we can think differently about seances and mediumship um, anthropologically, uh, but also you know, bringing in perspectives from neuroscience and the distinctions between like pathological brain states and non-pathological brain states and all sorts of things that just show that there's much more going on in these these situations than our standard kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater approach usually gives some credit for <laughs> hmm. those kind of studies would seem to really complement work that's done in the lab I, you can't do what you're describing in a lab can you it has to be in that sort of context it's that that's that that's the thing as well is that there's still i i get the sense that there's still this need for paranormal phenomenon to be replicable in a in a laboratory but what you're what you're writing about um and the 
the studies that the, the study that you did and and the other anthropologists that you've mentioned in our conversation i think they complement that don't they i mean there's, there's definitely stuff that can be looked at in laboratories but a lot of it has to sort of happen in the context that you, you've just described yeah i think there's much more scope for a kind of more of a two-way dialogue between anthropology and parapsychology because parapsychology like we've already said has always been quite reductionist in its approach especially since it's sort of distance itself from psychical research in the 1930s you know psychical researchers like uh, Frederick Myers and those kind of people were kind of like anthropologists you know they would go to haunted houses and they would go and interview uh, you know people who had had strange experiences and apparitions and they'd do they'd work like sociologists and do surveys and things like that and then you know in the 1930s when the parapsychology labs were established in Duke University, they kind of uh, went down the scientific route of uh, trying to demonstrate things statistically. And there was a great anthropologist, Ernesto Di Martino, who said that Italian anthropologist, who pointed out that parapsychology has reduced the complexity of the paranormal to these really simple experiments and ignores all of the drama. So that's what anthropology can add to parapsychology is, like I've been saying, putting the paranormal back into the flow of everyday life and the experiential kind of world. But also anthropology needs to learn from parapsychology because parapsychology is demonstrated with statistical evidence, the existence of things like psi, for -hmm. example, even though they're only very slightly statistically significant, it still seems to suggest that there is some kind of active process going on. So, you know, anthropology needs to face up to that. All of those theories and approaches to things like spirit possession and magic that have basically said that it was all down to cognitive um, errors or uh, down to like um, primitive thinking or irrational thinking or whatever have got to be reevaluated in, in light of the fact that actually, wait a minute, maybe we can on occasion, you know, influence the physical world with our minds or we can receive information from non-physical sources every now and again (laughs) it kind of means anthropology has got to rethink its standard position so there's scope there for you know learning from both disciplines they can there's a lot that they can learn from each other Mm. from your own experiences do you think that academia is heading in that way do do you think it's going to become more open-minded and um, in terms of how the paranormal is covered in mainstream media, for example, I mean, do you do you feel like things are getting better? I think um, in a lot of ways things are getting better. Um, it is possible to have these conversations in academic settings now, and um, there's a lot of work has been done over the last ten years to legitimise the study of the paranormal from a range of different perspectives, you know, in the humanities and social sciences in particular, but as well in, you know, the mainstream sciences. And there is funding, you know, for parapsychological research from big uh, scientific funders. So there is a lot of change going on in that direction as well. But at the same time, there is a kind of concerted, what seems like sometimes an attack on the humanities and social sciences in general, which is 
uh, a problem because it's opening up these new areas. But there's a very real chance that, you know, with the closure of religious studies departments and things like that, that these conversations won't be able to be had anymore. <laughs> so there are bigger issues as well um, around this. Yes, academia is opening up to these questions, but academia itself is also under threat in some some respects. Mm, right, yeah. So what are you working on at the moment? Have you got another book on the way or...? I've got a couple of few different things I'm working on at the moment. One is um, a book which will be published by August Night Press, who published Greening the Paranormal um, a couple of years ago. It's going to be called Deep Weird, uh, The Varieties of High Strangeness Experience. And it's going to kind of be riffing off uh, William James. Next year is the 120th anniversary of his book, The Varieties of Religious Experience. So it's going to kind of play off that. But um, looking at some of the most extreme kind of extraordinary experiences. So we've got chapters from a load of amazing con- contributors on all sorts of different things, um, from you know synchronicities and things like um, near-death experiences, all the way through to psychedelic entity encounters, um, humanoid encounters, things like that. And the book's going to be split into two parts. The first part will be sort of like uh, case studies or examples of different kinds of high strangeness experience. And then the second part of the book will be more to do with models or theoretical approaches for making sense of high strangeness. So that's going to be fun. Definitely. (laughs) Yeah. And the other book I'm working on at the moment, I'm working on with uh, Dr. Rachel Ironside, and it's all about folklore as a mediator of human relationships with place. Um, so that I'm thinking specifically about the different ways that folklore might be able to be used, you know, in terms of like tourism and things like that for establishing beneficial relationships, you know, environmentally um, sustainable and friendly relationships with places rather than, you know, environmentally destructive. And there's all sorts of great chapters for this book of from different parts of the world explaining some of the subtle ways that folklore um, and sometimes not so subtle ways that folklore and <laughs> mediates land, uh, interaction with landscape and place. So, yeah, that, that's two projects. Another one on Scooby-Doo as well, which is slightly on the back burner, but that's going to be cool. I have to ask you more about that. I love Scooby-Doo. <laughs> yeah, well... It's because, um, yeah, well, this is the point. I mean, I think a lot of people who are involved in the paranormal world have a soft spot for Scooby-Doo for a variety of different reasons. So, you know, last year during lockdown, my son was really getting into Scooby-Doo. And he's really, you know, their kids these days are lucky. Like when, if I wanted to watch Scooby-Doo when I was growing up, you know, you'd have to watch one episode a week (laughs) at best. And you'd probably forget that it, you know, forget to watch it one week and miss it. As now you can just watch so much Scooby Doo, it's unbelievable. So you know, I've inadvertently now watched a lot more Scooby Doo than I had previously. But obviously, there's all sorts of things in Scooby Doo. You know, it's the for, for a lot of people, it's their first exposure to you know, the paranormal or the gothic and things like that. And um, I had a kind of a hunch that lots of paranormal 
researchers and people like that would be would have been influenced by uh, watching Scooby-Doo, you know, to get started. And I started to think, well, there might be other interesting things going on with Scooby-Doo. Like, um, it was released actually on September the 13th, which is my birthday, <laughs> 1969. Um, and then what do we get in the 70s following that? This, you know, often called the decade of high strangeness, isn't it, the 1970s? And we have a proliferation of um, strange encounters with weird humanoids and stuff and all of these monster flaps and things in the 1970s. <laughs> so I'm not saying necessarily that Scooby-Doo caused that, but it's an interesting thing to think about, you know, the relationship between Scooby-Doo and real-life paranormal, the real-life paranormal world. So obviously the people who have created it would have been influenced by you know, B-movies and, you know, all of the other kind of paranormal stuff that they'd grown up with. And then the series itself will have influenced people to have experiences as well of a certain kind. This is something I've been exploring a lot recently is this weird feedback loop between culture and experience in the paranormal. Mm. And I think Scooby-Doo is a a useful (laughs) framework for thinking about that. Uh, so I'm collecting chapters. If anyone is interested, um, get in touch with me about that. I've got quite a few already, but we're looking for more. Sort of about Scooby-Doo and the paranormal. There's a great series on Amazon called, I think it's called Scooby-Doo Mystery Incorporated, which yes. had a, a Twin Peaks reference in it, which was amazing. I, it does. <laughs> I, love that, I love that series. It was great. I know. It's got lots of cool overlaps in it and Lovecraftian stuff. Yeah, HP Hatecraft yeah. in it, <laughs> and the other cool Twin Peaks crossover with Scooby Doo is Matthew Lillard as well, who was in season three of Twin Peaks. He also mm. was the voice of Shaggy. <laughs> all fun. No, I well, I I look forward to all those books coming out. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> cool. Well, Jack, this has been a brilliant conversation. Thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. If people want to find out more about your work and your books, how best do they do that? Yeah, well, um, my website is um, www.jack-hunter.webstarts.com or you can just go to Google and search for Dr. Jack Hunter and um, you should be able to find me. And I've got a Facebook page and various things. And there's also the uh, Parentropology uh, group on Facebook, which is an active group for thinking about all sorts of ways that parapsychology and anthropology interact with each other. Excellent. Well, I'll make sure to put all that in the show notes. Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you, Jack. No problem. I have to admit, I wasn't expecting that interview to finish with a chat about Scooby-Doo, but I'm more than happy it did. Definitely a future episode there, I think. I really enjoyed my conversation with Jack. His research and writing output is well worth checking out, especially if, like me, you're trying to broaden your horizons when it comes to exploring the nature of Fortean phenomena. It really opened my eyes to read about concepts such as monophasic and polyphasic cultures, individual personhood, straightforward concepts that could have profound implications for how best to contextualise paranormal experiences in the Western world. That's all for now. 
please consider rating this episode wherever you listen and sharing it on social media as it really helps the podcast to grow and find new listeners. You can follow Some Other Sphere on Twitter at spherical underscore pod and subscribe on all good podcast platforms. You can now also donate to the podcast via Ko-fi. Details on how to do that are in the show notes. If you'd like to email me here at Sphere HQ, the address is someothersphere at gmail.com. It'd be lovely to hear from you. Until next time, be safe and well, and thank you very much for listening.